Uh, welcome back to Questions You Never Thought to Ask, the Whitewater Kayaking Podcast, uh, first episode of 2020. I'm very excited to be welcoming back Ben Stooksbury, who's going to be talking to us a bit about, um, I don't know if kidnapped or detained is the correct word, a, a recent trip in Colombia. Ben, welcome back. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. We, uh, we finally made it together here after kind of going for a little bit too early of a start. Uh, nine o'clock is a little more reasonable than seven, I think. So this is great. I think so, too. So why don't, um, I don't know, I guess start, I, I want to say start in the middle and work backwards. Why don't we start at the start? Like uh, you were recently detained for a period in, in Colombia. Uh, what were you doing? How did you get there? What, what was the form on that? Yeah, so this was a, a return to a river that we had hiked out of two years ago, a river that Lane Jacobs out of the Columbia River Gorge had scoped out. Um, I started boating in Columbia with, with Lane right after Rafa Ortiz's wedding in 2016. We had known each other before that, but we sort of uh, got together and started talking at the, at the wedding there. And uh, incidentally, Rafa ended up being with us on this trip, and it was, it was Rafa's first whitewater trip in Columbia. So it was sort of coming full circle from doing our first uh, expedition together after Rafa's, Rafa's wedding in 2016 to, to finally having Rafa on the mission with us. And uh, so it was, it was a river that we had tried uh, in 2017, um, uh, tribute, big tributary to the Amazon. Um, and like so many of these, the, the rivers and the territory in Colombia, it's just recently becoming more safe and the security is improving, but there's still a lot of gray area. And this river is, is a great example of that. When we went in last time around, it seemed like um, the town that was sort of right on the other side of the mountains from where the river started, about 50% of the people in the town said it was a good idea to go in. The other 50% said that, you know, told us stories about, um, about all sorts of bad things happening over there. Um, people getting kidnapped, you know, no foreigners in there. And if the foreigners were in there in the past, they were CIA spies and they had been kidnapped and, and all oh, wow. sorts of just crazy stories. But when we talked to the people that were actually living back there in the farms, they assured us, no, 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 it's, it's safe now. You can come back, you can come in. So we, so Lane along with uh, Jules Domine, who's sort of a exponent of Colombian kayaking these days, the, the he's like he's the guy. I think people understate how much Jules is, is like a, a a player in Colombia. He's like if you're in Colombia, he's the guy I would want to know because he is like so connected. He's like knowledgeable of what's good and what's bad and where everything is and like areas that are safe to go and areas that aren't. Like it's it's crazy how underrated that guy is for his Colombia connections. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would I would agree a hundred percent. He's basically been in country the majority of the time since 2012 when he first showed up so he's he's eight years on the ground um and what five years with uh expedition columbia his rafting company on the samana so absolutely you're right he's he's the guy who's got his finger on the pulse um and uh he's the guy that I've been to most of these far flung places with recently. He wasn't on this particular trip because he was out in the Amazon on this crazy Amazon, Amazonian icons mission where they're sort of blending white water with 
this uh, sort of one-of-a-kind cultural experience that exists out in the Colombian Amazon. So really looking forward to seeing what he comes up with on that end. But it meant that he wasn't with us on this particular trip. So so in that way, we were so stoked to have Rafa along because, of course, he is a native Spanish speaker and uh, otherwise just super calm and um, amazing personality to have with you when you're in a place that's you know, not a hundred percent all sorted out. Uh, yeah, I've been on a couple of trips with Rafa, and he is like one of the funniest. Like, no matter how shitty your day is going, he is a funny guy to hang out with. You yeah, know? And even if it's like, oh man, we had like doing a big hike out. It's like, oh yeah, Rafa will say something stupid that like makes you laugh and forget how much misery you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if it, if things get weird, if things things get hard, like he's the type of guy you want to have along. He's going to keep it light. He's going to keep it, you know, funny. But at the same time, he is he's a beast of a kayaker and just a super solid individual. Um, so I guess it was so two years ago, Jules and Lane and I had gone into the Rio Guayas. We we sort of stood in this town. The the Chivo was leaving for the other side of the mountains at five in the morning. We showed up at four thirty, still didn't have our boats on the bus and still weren't a hundred percent convinced that we should go in the first place. And like I said, after talking with and speaking with a driver and the locals that live on the other side, we decided to get on the Chiva. Um, we basically got off as soon as we could, as soon as we could see the river, we just thought that we were going to be safer down on the river corridor, that we would just, it would just be a good idea to minimize sort of, uh, as many human encounters as we, as we could. So we got off before, before the end of the road and before the, before the big Pueblo that the, that the bus was going to towards spent three days in the river um it was october and it was definitely the end of the rainy season but the river was still quite high um on the third day there was a huge rainstorm the river came up a few meters um but it was it had already been up into the trees and we were sort of perched above this final 50 kilometers of canyon where a bunch of trips come together and you have a river that's that's a quite large river at that time it was running five, six, 7,000 CFS. It was going to drop in places with, with sort of like a little white-esque sort of gradient. So it was, it just wasn't a good time to do it. We were sort of at the last possible point that we could hike back up towards the road that has the Chiva on it. And, uh, you know, despite our concerns of sort of exposing us, exposing ourselves to, uh, you know, what might what might be up in the jungle, what might be up in the Pueblo. We went up there anyways, and we had just a wonderful experience with uh, the people in the town. We ended up catching uh, catching an ambulance in the back of a dump truck, emergency ambulance. It was taking a, a young girl that was, was having a medical issue back to town. We caught a ride back to town and just, <laughs> just uh, had a pretty, pretty good experience. Three days in the river, um, hiked out, but with with high hopes of, of someday coming back. Um, and in the meantime, Lane and his, his partner had a, had a little girl. So he was sort of, uh, detained and otherwise occupied for all of last year, raising, raising the little girl and being, being a father. And then, um, round about this past December, he had arranged, uh, three weeks off from work and the guys was right there at the top of our list. And, uh, so that's how, that's how the trip got started. So it was, it was literally going back to a river that we had, 
we had wanted to do um, for years now and uh, sort of dialed in the, the right time of year, the right season when we figured that the, the water level would be more suitable to an exploratory descent. Um, so that kind of from- sets the scene for us. So people know you're like, we're trying to come back to this Guayas River. You're in for like the, the completion part, if you like. Um, right. And that kind of fast forward to 2019. Yeah, so fast forward to 2019, we had we'd run a headwater stretch of the river. Um, in terms of the completion, yeah, it was it was really just the actual attempt on the river itself. You know, we had run, like I said, we had run the headwaters portion of the river, a head headwater stream of the river, but where the river really gets together and becomes an actual river, um, we had hiked out. So we were looking at the full stretch of the river and certainly zeroing in on that bottom stretch of the river. Um, like I said, we had Rafa come and, and join up with us. And and right off the bat, um, things were interesting for us in Colombia. We we had uh, we had a snafu. Um, our our fixer in Colombia got robbed, apparently, according to him. Oh, damn. Um, apparently. Total, total bummer. He showed up with a black eye. We're not really sure exactly what happened, but... Anyways, we were, we were supposed to have our vehicle, our transport all arranged so that we could go directly to the river so that we could just have the opera- operation totally streamlined. Um, and essentially, our, our transportation budget just disappeared just like that. And we were on the bus, which, you know, if I could recommend anything to your listeners, it would be just just forget about, like, arranging your own transport in Colombia. You know, the buses really are, they really do have a phenomenal bus system from the main buses that take you between the main cities and the larger pueblos to those classic colorful chivas that take you into the mountains and take you into the headwaters rivers. It's a great opportunity to practice your Spanish, um, get some local information, and otherwise just travel at just a phenomenally... um, inexpensive rate you know the first leg of the trip that we did after landing in bogota was a nine-hour bus trip from bogota um, south in the south down down the andes and that particular trip was 15 dollars a person and 10 dollars a boat for example and then from there so that was um that was giving me a follow-up question i had actually when uh, when you got a second here but like rough roughly whereabouts in in colombia are we talking here if, like a lot of people right. um are familiar with like seminar that medellin area which is um right. more west um wh- whereabouts are you in here yeah so you kind of you you kind of have to look at a map because colombia is sort of counterintuitive at least for me in that way where the caribbean is on the far north coast in cartagena and then a little further south, you start talking about Antioquia, Medellin, Samana, and then further south from that, south and um, slightly more east, you're into Bogota. And essentially, what you the the best way that I think about Colombia is in terms of those three cordillera of the Andes, right at the Equatorian border. The sort of crest of the Andes breaks into three different ranges that run north to south. Um, on the far sort of north, north, northwest side, west, northwest side, you have the Pacific Ocean and the Andes draining into the Pacific. Sort of, it's, it's a pretty wild place from what I hear, like one of the longest roadless coastlines um, on the whole of the Pacific Ocean. 
And then within these two ranges, the first two ranges going sort of to the east, you have the Calco River, which is one side of Medellin. And then on the other side of Medellin, you have the Magdalena River. That's where the Samaná drains. And that's where um, Bogota is sort of perched on the eastern side of the Magdalena River. And then to the east of that is your Orinoco and your Amazon basins. And so where we are is south of Bogota, down the Magdalena Valley, going sort of towards Ecuador. But then once we get, uh, like I said, about nine hours south of Bogota, we hop on a Chiva, go up to the crest of the Amazonian facing Cordillera of the Andes, pop over, and the Guayas is actually draining down into the Amazon basin, forming the headwaters of the Caguan, the Caquetá, which eventually comes the, uh, the Amazon. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm looking on a map right now, actually, because I was uh, unsure about it. But yeah, that is that is remote out there. Like, if people are following along, look on Google Maps. Like, once you go south of of uh, Bogota, there like the amount of roads goes into like I don't know a tenth maybe versus going north or going towards the coast. Right. I mean, and to be to be fair all over Colombia, there are remote zones, you know, to the far north, you start talking about the, the Sierra de Santa Marta, the tallest coastal mountain range on earth up on the Caribbean side. And that's an incredible zone. And then further south, you start talking about the Orinoco basin, which is another just wild zone that we were able to explore on my very first trip with Lane and the Rio Mar Margua up there. I mean, um, and again, you know, you, we were, I was mentioning earlier that longest roadless coastline on the Pacific side over on the other side. So, I mean, whether you're talking about Antioquia, whether you're talking about where we were down towards Huila, and then on the other side into the Amazon basin in Caquetá, you're talking about all these zones with, you know, a million shades of remoteness from the center of the city where you can get, you know, first rate medical care, you can get all all the city comforts you'd find in any Western city to, you know, some of the most remote places in, in the entire Western hemisphere. Uh, it's, it's an amazing country that way, but, but we are in a zone that sort of has that blend of uh, a remoteness of a wilderness setting mixed with the remoteness of this rural area that certainly in the past was controlled by, by, um, armed groups, FARC, ELN, and was a center, uh, a center point for, for coca production. So, um, you know, when you're talking about pure wilderness in Colombia, sometimes you're talking about areas that are sort of safer than the areas that are right on that cusp of, of rural and, and, uh, and wilderness. Um, but this, you know, this particular place, it wasn't so much that it was just off limits, but it was that Lane had had been had been looking at this river and looking at the satellite imagery and seeing that, you know, this river isn't just another river to be explored, another river that looks like it drops off the face of the earth. It literally looks like it could be one of these world classic rivers, like a a Zambezi or a Fudalafu or, you know, uh another sort of Samana-esque river where you have this beautiful pool drop scenario. It was, it was literally like something that we just 
we just couldn't help but do and and put in the work and and take some some risk in order to see this river and see if it actually was um as classic as as we hoped it would be and uh, so this time around we did the same thing we got on the chiva unfortunately sort of we we got that same mix of recommendations from the locals in the little town, the jumping off point for, for the Guayas mission in a little town called Algeciras. Half the locals, when we showed up, were like, holy shit, where are you guys going? There was, didn't you know that there was just a group of four guys who were murdered up there for flying their drone around? And they're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then there's another guy like, no, you know, that was, that was, those were, that was years ago. Like it's, it's good now. You guys are good. And then we also had this experience from the past where we went over there we had such a great experience with super kind locals, um, didn't have any feeling of security risk. And so this time around, it was a much easier decision to get on the Chiva and go after it. Uh, the weather seemed good, although you really can't tell anything about the weather on one side of the mountains to what the weather's going to be on the other side of the mountains, of course. So we had to go up there and just see for ourselves the seven hour after you get off the the nine hour bus ride from Bogota, it's another couple hours up to Algeciras, and then it's a seven hour Chiva on a crazy four wheel drive road. Um, and for, for people who don't know, a Chiva is like a, a hop on, hop off, like open sided bus type vehicle with like a, like kind of like exactly the stereotype you picture when you think about a bus in South America. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a classic Colombian mode of transportation. I believe they, they have them in Ecuador as well, but it's sort of very, very specific to, um, to just the, the, the super equatorial tropics where you're, you're not dealing with a whole lot of cold weather, open-sided, um, a huge rack on top, which is obviously um, perfect for kayaks. So it's, it's no issues getting the boats on. Um, and it's just this amazing cultural experience at, at, at their fastest, maybe the, the, the Chivas could go 40 miles an hour on a paved road, but in general on this four by four road, we're going at about five to 15 miles an hour crossing creeks. Um, and it's, they are amazing beasts, huge diesel engines, massive tires, stacks of like 15 leaf springs. They're the mechanical mules of of the colombian andes and uh it's it's a wonderful part of the experience a great way to see the countryside you can just go up top sit in your kayak if you like and watch the jungle go by um and so that for me at both times around that's been life of of the experience um this time around we went straight to where we hiked out last time we we didn't bother with what we had done last time around was like a, a 50 kilometers headwaters section that that had a pretty pretty gnarly stretch of river in it with, with several portages that took us multiple hours so we were keen to sort of go right to where the river got big right to where we could see the huge rapids sort of starting and right to where we had hiked out the last time around um it was really no worries to there when we saw the river for the first time where we got in the previous the previous attempt the river looked much lower so so those signs were all good um, got into the tributary boated right down to where we had, had started the hike out and sure enough the river was literally meters lower 
And that being said, it still had um, probably up towards 2000 CFS in it, which is such a good sign when you're, when you're looking at um, a kayaking river. When a river is at its very lowest, still a couple thousand CFS, I mean, in so many other places around the world, this is a river that would already be dammed, right? Because yeah, of for sure. how much how much water it has. Of course, we're looking at a 50 kilometer stretch of rapids downstream, so you can only imagine the type of gradient that it has. So, it's it's sort of one of those reasons of why we go to Colombia and why it's such an amazing time to see the the security of Colombia improving, um, because these rivers that have been sort of off limits to the outside world. And most importantly for us, off limits to multinational construction firms, multinational concerns that would like to dam these rivers. These rivers are still wild, still free flowing. And I think the Guayas is, is a really good example of that. So we head downstream day one um, is literally just getting back to where we hiked out, boating a little bit downstream, spending our first night on the river. Um, You've, I, I don't know, have you, have you boated in Colombia, Seth? Yeah, I've paddled on the Semana and, and some of the other rivers that Jules does in, in that uh, Medellin zone. Sick. Yeah, so you know, you probably know all about, like, um, you basically live in, in hammocks there because it can rain so much. So it's, it's sort of a unique style of camping and, and it always takes a little bit to, to get your, your setup dialed and figure out how much tension you need in the hammock, how to make sure that your bug net is there. Um, the, the danger of mosquito borne illness, uh, sand fly borne illness is, is real and you have to take precautions for it. I luckily I've never had any issues with it, but, um, but it is, is something that we need to be aware of. So, so we're always in um, the bug netting at night, of course. I always wear long pants on the river. Just just the little things, the little ways that you change your overnight setup in, in the different locations that you go. Um, but but when you do those little things, overnighting in Colombia can be just so um, incredibly comfortable. And with, you know, the warm nights. And so we spend the first night on the river all good. Uh, and the next day is the day that we first get a taste of the rapids that we had sort of been dreaming about for the last two years, the, the rapids that we had only seen from satellite imagery. And amazingly, it's exactly what we hoped it would be. Sort of those style of rapids, class five, but super runnable, um, 2000 CFS of clear water, uh, beautiful jungle canopy surrounding the sides, but open enough to where we could easily scout and or portage if we needed to that first day i believe we we maybe portaged one time and it was an elective portage so it was it was exactly what we hoped it would be took our second night on the river and uh, just as we were going to bed there were a couple flashes of lightning and sure enough uh, about an hour into getting in our hammocks we get a torrential downpour wake up the next morning and the river has come up higher than we saw it when we were there two years ago. So it's, we've had a bit of a flash flood. The river's up eight feet. Another thing you do on the river um, in Colombia that may be different to other places, but similar to pretty much everywhere in the tropics is you, you make sure to get up super high above the river level. Make sure there's no signs of 
uh, uh, river rock or sand where you're sleeping because the rivers in Colombia are no joke. Rivers in Ecuador are no joke in that when they rain and it doesn't even have to rain on your head, these floods can come down. And, um, and if you're not camped high enough, they can take you by surprise. So luckily we were camped up high enough. It wasn't, you know, one of these apocalyptic floods, but it was, it was high enough to change the river from this beautiful crystal clear 2000 CFS river to, uh, I have no idea, probably eight to 10,000 CFS all of a sudden oh, wow. in the morning. And, uh, and that was another, another thing that's, um, that we did different this time than last time around. Last time around, we, we literally planned to, to do the river perfectly, to be on the river for the exact number of days that we thought it would take us. And this time around, we realized that, you know, um, if there was a rainstorm or if we did run into some serious portaging or, you know, any other complications that we might have along the way, you just need to plan to have extra days. And so at that point, we're like, shit, how many extra days are we going to need? We, we, we had about a week's worth of food, um, but it was it was literally a case of that exponential rise in the river that you get with the classic rainstorm, we saw the exponential decay that followed it. Sort of the river dropping by half every hour. And by about noon, the river was still two feet higher, but we were able to get back in. It was big, brown, but still just more classic rapids open enough to where we could portage. We had, we had a bit of a, of a crazy deal right at the end of that day where Blaine's boat slipped into the river and his camera bag was on top of his boat and it literally came off the bank right into the river, right into this huge rapid that we were about to portage and, and Lane jumped into the bottom of the rapid and basically got on top of his boat and swam through this massive hole, swam, leashed his kayak and swam his boat to shore. It was, it was completely insane. And uh, just a good reminder of the type of things that, that go wrong on a trip like this it's not necessarily when you run a huge rapid or when you're getting amped up to, to run a big section of whitewater it's portaging down the bank or losing a boat into the river or yeah i've i've always found that my, i have my worst accidents not kayaking like uh i say i always say scouting is the most dangerous part of of whitewater kayaking like anytime you're out of your boat uh, yeah absolutely yeah and this one literally almost I don't even know what we would have done because by this point we're day two, we're 15, 20 kilometers downstream. There's no trails. It's pure jungle at this point, um, right in the heart of a place that has pretty mixed reviews to say the least in terms of security. Um, there's no helicopter that's going to come in there and pick you up. And uh, that was sort of a real eye-opening experience right there to realize that like one you know one bump of the kayak um one just miscalculation and things are going to get real savage real quickly and luckily he just pulled a complete hero maneuver jumped in the river and took a big risk realizing that the risk he was about to take of jumping in the river to get his kayak was going to be better than you know, the potential risk of having to deal with without his mode of transportation to get out of that place. Um, 
So <laughs> it was it was a little bit of a nail biter, but all good at the bottom. We got his camera bag back, got his boat. He got his boat back. Roth was able to rescue his camera bag out of the eddy. Get back together. Spend the third night. River continues to drop. Next day, more of the same. I mean, I can't tell you that how how many first descents of all of these first descents that I've done. So few are rivers that you think, wow, this could be a classic river. I mean, just a fraction of those. And this this Guayas was literally turning into one of the best rivers that I've ever done. Just continuous class four, five. Like I said, open. The beautiful terrain, the beautiful jungle all around, fresh water pouring in from all sides, the river continuing to grow in size from tributaries, but the the rainstorm that had made the river flood was obviously dissipating as the river sort of regained its clear color. Um, on By day five, I was 100% sure that this was going to be literally like the next... Um, I don't even know what, what river is to compare it to other than literally like a, a lower volume Stikeen or something like that. Like it's just a river that is so classic, but cutting edge enough to be, um, to attract, you know, the world's best boaters for, for all boaters to put on their bucket list. Um, at that point, we were about 10 kilometers only above where we were going to take out, where the road, there's a road on the Amazonian side that crosses the river before it heads out into the Amazon basin and gets flat. Um, and it was just at that point that we finally started to see agriculture again from, from where we had left the road back up on the, on the Andean side of the river, um, to there, it was literally just a pure jungle corridor. And all of a sudden we started to see the fields. Lane looked up and said, yeah, that's, you know, that's cocoa, that's, that's, that's cocaine. We, we better, you know, let's, let's try to move quickly through there. But this is a point too, where it was, it was sort of unlike other rivers in that um, the rapids were actually getting bigger and steeper as we went downstream. And so we were taking a bit more time as we were moving through this section, spending all day literally scouting, doing a few portages and running huge, huge rapids that were only getting bigger. The big, In fact, the biggest rapid that we ran on the whole river was the very last rapid before we camped on night five. And... Uh, Damn. Just as just as we were putting up our hammocks, um, you know, it was it was we we were just so elated, really, by what we had seen, by the beauty of the river, by the fact that we were going to wake up on day six and run what from what we could compare to what we had already run and what we could see on satellite imagery. We're going to be even bigger and the biggest rapids of the whole trip right to the bridge, like literally almost no, maybe one kilometer of moving flat water down to this bridge where we were going to take out. It was like, holy shit, a total dream come true. We just were not, we weren't we we didn't appreciate where we were we didn't appreciate the fact that we had just passed by coca fields and within 30 minutes of, of coming into camp right at dusk it's not like we camped with any daylight we came in there at dark 
there was a couple dozen guys that rolled right into our camp, surrounded us from all sides. They it appeared as though they intentionally came in from all sides so that we couldn't go anywhere. And uh, it was a real concerning situation right off the bat because um, we didn't know who they were. Um, luckily, it was it was pretty apparent right away that they they weren't armed, um, with the exception of their machetes. But you know there was enough of them so that it was apparent that that absolutely they were in control. Um, initially, we thought that you know maybe we were going to be able to talk it out at river level right there, figure something out. Um, stay in our camp but then over the course of a few hours them using their radios to contact um someone up above supposedly um they had decided that they needed us to come with them um and at that point you just i mean what are you going to do are you going to try to run are you going to try to and and the thing that we did have going for us is that like i said they weren't armed they were all wearing the official insignia of the of an indigenous guard, and the indigenous guard in Colombia is um, this indigenous effort to reclaim their lands from this civil war that has been going on for so long. Um, they've the indigenous populations in Colombia have have definitively been the biggest losers through the conflict between armed guerrilla groups and the government. Um, and now that the peace process is underway, they're trying to stand up for the, the right to their, to their agricultural lands and the, the right to govern and control and provide security for their land. So this was one of those forces. Um, still, you know, we were unsure exactly what was going to happen. They were, um, quite concerned that we were a part of a multinational that's planning to put big hydroelectric dams, three large hydroelectric dams on this Guayas River. And so being the first white guys that all of a sudden show up on their doorstep, they were, they were pretty sure that we were there, you know, taking measurements, doing a study, checking out the river corridor for, for basically resource extraction. Um, and so from that, from that point of view, it, over time and through the night, after they searched us, after they took all of our communications equipment off of us, which is another thing that you, you never want to have happen. But again, at that point, um, from my point of view, I'm, I'm just more concerned about um, playing by their rules and, and making it as um, copacetic and, and making it as um, communicative of an experience as possible and not having them get essentially a bad impression of us. Because in my mind already at this point, I'm pretty convinced that this is, this is one of, one of the best rivers I've ever paddled. And I want to do everything in my power to try to try to increase the opportunity or increase the odds that, that other paddlers you know, hopefully I get to do it again, but if, if uh, some other paddlers get to see this place again, you know, I think it could only help um, give, give more rationale to try to protect a river like this that's sort of way off the beaten path, way off the radar of most people. So we're up in the village. We're up. It's really just a, just a farmhouse. Um, this 
group of 30 or so yellow and green clad individuals are, are there all the time. When we go to sleep, they're actually guarding us at night. And over time, they tell us that that was for our own security, that there are other groups in the area that that aren't, uh, they tell us that wouldn't have been so nice to us. Essentially, I guess, implying that there are still armed rebel groups in the area. Um, And we were held for two days while they checked our identifications, supposedly, and contacted the Colombian military and the regional police and set up, um, set up a meeting to where they would hike us instead of allowing us to continue downstream, they would hike us out of the mountains with all of our gear and deliver us to the Pueblo where, where we had planned to take out initially. And, uh, and supposedly doing that for our own, for our own safety. Um, but it became obvious that they were, how many, sorry to interrupt you, how many uh, days and nights before they decided that they were going to walk you out to the town um, were, you, were you detained? Yeah, so it ended up being with, with the evening. We spent uh, three evenings um, up in the Finca. And then on, I guess, what would be that, you know, the morning of the, the 4th morning the morning before the fourth evening so morning of day three or day four they ended up hiking us out to the to the village giving initial before that um arranging with us to pay their expenses which we weren't real stoked about um but i think (laughs) i think a big part of that too was getting robbed right when we hit the ground for our for our rental car, which the two incidences aren't at all related, of course, but it was quite painful again to face basically a, a very similar bill to the one that we had faced for getting robbed for the rental car. Um, and um, according to them, wanting us to pay for the whole security operation, that included you know all 30 of their guys, feeding everyone for three days, and they were also they also initially tried to negotiate for the the footage that we had taken on the river because they'd taken all of our cameras, all of our GoPros, everything. And oh, wow. we just at that point we just told them, you know, this, we just can't pay you for that stuff. You know, this is this is something that we do um, really not for huge monetary gain. You know, I I we weren't lying to them. Um, of course, Lane Jacobs, he's a, he's a registered nurse. Um, Rafa and I are sponsored paddlers, but, you know, we're not getting rich off this. We're not making that much money. And so we were just honest with them in that way. And that, you know, if, if they felt like they needed a bunch more money for our footage, then we just, we weren't going to be able to pay them. And then just to go ahead and, and delete the footage, if, if that's what they wanted to do. And we felt we had to just, just put our foot down at that point, because I mean, Literally, for us, um, paying a ton of money for for the footage and and potentially even setting a precedent in that way was was just something that we weren't willing to do. And at that point, they did relent, and uh, <clears throat> and we certainly appreciated that that they that they gave us the footage back and didn't didn't try to to get more money out of us. I mean, it, at that point. 
um, it's understandable that they're going to, they're going to try to get some money out of us. You know, we understand that. And we're not going to scream bloody murder. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to try to say that we got robbed. We're not going to try to say that we got kidnapped either. We understand that the situation is extremely fresh following years and years and years of civil war in the area. Um, we're also just so grateful to the, for the opportunity to, to have made it down that river as far as we did. I mean, it does, it really does sting that we didn't make it to the takeout and that we missed probably from what, from what I could see, at least another half dozen rapids that were going to be at least as big as the biggest thing that we had, we had gotten to run to that point. Um, but, um, but in shelling out a couple hundred bucks a piece, um, in making what I think was, was a pretty, a pretty good first impression with a group that is absolutely controlling the, the bottom portion of that river. I, you know, I really hope that, um, that we can continue to, to stay in touch with this group. Hope, you know, hope, hope for the best for them. You know, they're in a, they're in a tough situation because, because they're still growing cocaine and by, by not growing cocaine, I'm sorry, growing coca and producing, producing the raw materials for cocaine, um, which just puts them in in a dicey position with the government it still puts them in a, in a bit of a conflict with the government. And, you know, from my point of view, I can, of course, I can understand why they do it. You know, it's, they're, they're, they're certainly not getting rich off doing it. I can tell you that much. It's a subsistence level farming operation, but it's drastically better than what they would be making, um, growing cafe coffee for, for example. And, um, you know, and, and they are an indigenous group. They do have certain rights that, that grant them um, autonomy when it comes to growing a, a crop in the Andes, which is native and which does have, um, which does have purposes in the indigenous communities. So, so all of that being said, it's just, I think that um, the biggest thing that, that I wanted to see from from our side was just a, just a real understanding of of their circumstance and and in my communications with the outside world about you know what happened on this particular trip as opposed to what happened back in 2016 on the Apoporis with Jules and and Aniel and Chris and Jesse Rice was was totally different in this in this case because the group was unarmed and um, they have actual not not just perceived rights, but actual legal constitutional rights when it comes to governing their own, their own land because of their, um, their indigenous status, um, which I think is an amazing thing because it was obvious from, from the very first encounter that their main concern was not necessarily getting a couple hundred dollars a piece off of us, you know, obvious very obviously they can't they went through everything that we had they saw all of our money and that was another fuck up that we that we had going for us because after we um we sort of lost the rental car lost our our own transportation we packed everything with us and we were just carrying way too much cash with us i mean that was it was not that was just sort of a rookie maneuver on our part but they that being said they knew how much cash we had we had 
a lot more than just a couple hundred dollars a piece on us all told and you know that with our cameras with you know all of our other gear we had a lot more to lose than just you know what what they perceived as a, a just compensation for 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 dealing with a situation that that came out of the blue um so i guess yeah it, it was not ideal in the sense that we, we weren't able to finish the river and we <laughs> we still uh still a complete descent of the guayas is is still out there frustratingly so but um but in that cultural experience and in um in absolutely negotiating with them for um you know not only our release but for the potential for allowing kayakers to come come through their zone in the future i think i think it was some kind of success yeah i mean really it sounds like you were just you know improving uh, relationships with indigenous peoples of the of the guayas uh, river drainage and third time is probably going to be the charm i certainly hope so <laughs> um well, so. so 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 really like you know it, it could have been a lot worse and relative to some of your other times uh in uh detention is not the right word i guess based on what you've said but in your uh times being slowed down by indigenous locals this one wasn't too bad yeah you know in my experience pretty much every time very luckily so we've been able to deal with these sorts of situations in a similar manner, even with the, the armed FARC. Um, the thing that really got crazy was, uh, was when governments were contacted, when FBI C FBI was notified. There is no, no, there's no, uh, I guess the, the FBI is the one in control and in, in international affairs of Columbia for some reason. But when when all of those like larger concerns got notified and, you know, that's when that situation started to spiral out of control. And I'm not saying that it was it was the wrong thing that happened there. That was a crazy situation. But I am saying that even there um, we were able to deal with with our detainers, with with our captors. um, And we were treated really well In, in Mexico when we've been when we've been held by Zapatistas, the same thing, you know, I, and I think that if, if I could give any advice to, um, you know, younger paddlers out there, any, you know, anybody who plans on, on paddling in some of these locations that have mixed security issues, which, which I think is so many places, um, is that just the very, the very first thing that should be done is to, is to try to communicate, you know, there's all sorts of different um, circumstance where you just need to run or you need to get out of there or you need to fight you know i'm not saying that that those are the wrong things to do but i am saying that that the first thing that should be done is to really understand to try to understand the situation and to not to not make it worse than it actually is um and i think that this was this was really just another good example of being able to deal with the situation by by not getting into a hurry and to have a few extra days to to basically sit it out, wait it out, you know. Pay yeah, I think hundred, that's pay a few hundred bucks, which is no, which is no different than than would happen if, say, you're driving down the road and you blow out your radiator. You have to think about it along those terms and not try to take any of this personally or think that you know it's unjust. I think. Yeah, I, I think that's the the something I've been figuring out a lot more lately is that 
skill to be able to just detach yourself from the situation, detach your ego, and just yes. think about it, like you know, from an outside looking in instead of this like emotional inward looking out. And you, you can get a lot more achieved, I think, than um, than just you know being in the being what a younger me would have done in the heat of the moment. You know, it's uh, oh, you know man, important to get that detachment. You know, you and me both, and you know, still to this day just uh, with any relations doesn't have to be with uh, an autonomous indigenous group or an armed group. It could be with your significant other, of course. Right. It's just being able to take a deep breath and to deal with this situation, just like any of the other multitude of uncontrollable, unintended, you know, just like a, <laughs> Like I said, like a blown radiator. Yep. Treat, what, we can treat you do right. Treat, like what can treat life like Yeah, you can just try to deal with it, try to get it fixed, and um, try to stay as calm and as congenial as possible in the in you know while it's while you're sorting it out. All right, let's change gears just for a hot second. Um, you yeah. had that new Jackson Zen three out there. How'd you like it? What was your what was your Ben six three review? Yeah, so right off the bat, I was stoked on it. Um, and right off the bat means that when it showed up in my mom's house in Denver, just before I was about to get on the plane to go to Columbia, I realized, wow, you know, this is this is a step in the right direction for me. I like seeing the boat eight inches shorter um, than when I was in previously, which was the medium Nirvana. Um, I just feel like it's so much easier to fit on the plane. It's going to be less of a hassle there for transport, on buses, that sort of thing. Um, but I guess what people are probably most interested in is how is it, how is it in the water? And initially, I have to say that it, it does paddle quite a bit different than the Nirvana. Um, and I was a little, I was a, <clears throat> I, I was a little uh, slow to sort of get the hang of it in that way because I was sort of right into uh, – sort of the steep creek entrance to the Guayas and trying to pull off some of these powerful little boof moves by doing what I had done in the past in the Nirvana, which is sort of sit on the ass end of the boat, that big bulbous ass end and boof. And a couple times right off the bat, I got whiplash getting back ended. Granted, I had eight days of eight days of food in the boat, um, food and supplies, which was another thing that I, I really liked was realizing that, the medium Zen for me was was easier, even easier to pack than the Nirvana, which the Nirvana was already light years ahead of, of so many other boats that I've seen, especially uh, of other manufacturers, that this boat's even easier, I think, because it's wider. You know, you can't fit a two-piece breakdown in the back, but, um, but it's a, w a wider opening, so it was much easier to pack. But I did have the back enders initially, so I moved the seat forward. Um, and after five days on the Guayas and we did another couple rivers, I did a first descent alone on a river, a uh, couple drainages over from the Guayas. So by the end of that time, I was feeling just extremely at home in the boat. And really what was most important, the most important change for me between the Zen and the Nirvana is just, I can sit in that boat for long periods of time. I can sit in the Zen for long periods of time, as opposed to the Nirvana and not have my legs fall asleep. And granted, I have I have size 12 feet, um, 
And so I think that that's probably one of the big issues that I have with, with the Nirvana is, is just my, my feet and getting sort of slightly tweaked so that, so that my legs sit flat enough. So they went to sleep, but, but just that comfort and just feeling like it, it feels like a sports utility vehicle for creaking and, and down river running. Um, super agile that was the other thing the other big improvement for me over um the nirvana is that it just turns so much easier um, that being said it's obviously not as fast as nirvana obviously i mean yeah no it is it is significantly slower it's significantly slower um but i don't know if it's just my boating style i I appreciate it in some ways. Uh, for me, when the Nirvana, when I both the Nirvana totally empty, um, like I could feel it just get away from me. It was just like just voluminous enough and long enough and fast enough where I just come out of things like a rocket ship and a little out of control, honestly. And in the Zen, I just feel like I'm in control, especially when I got myself back in the front seat. I started driving the boat again because... I don't know if maybe I was just doing it wrong, but in the Nirvana, I would just sit on that ass end and pull powerful strokes and just let it skip out of things. Whereas in the Zen, uh, I realized that I just, I had to start driving it. Um, but God, just the way that it just zips in and out of the eddies, the way that I just felt in total control of the boat after, you know, I kind of got myself dialed in. I, I'm super stoked on it. Cool. Okay, good to hear. I uh, just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. I, I had one. Um, I still have one, but I paddled it in Indonesia just before Christmas, and I re really enjoyed it, too. Um, yeah, I, le I left mine in Bogota at uh, the guy's house who potentially robbed us, so I'm going to just uh, yeah, keep my gone, fingers... That, that thing's I'm just gone. Gonna... <laughs> Fuck. God damn. That's... If, that, if you're lucky, if, that book, if you're lucky, if Jules books... will get it, and it'll get back to you, but, you know... If that boat's gone, all that congenial shit I was talking about goes out the door, and I'm going to launch a full-on guerrilla camp war campaign against against that one this, dude. Uh, the, against the one dude who I will not name now, but will soon name if if anything happens to that boat. I um, well, if if you have to come back on the podcast and name names, you call me. We'll we'll figure it out. I'll uh, I'll, I'll spearhead that that project. Right. Thanks for that. I might I might have to take you up on it. Hopefully not. All right. Well, I don't really have anything else to ask you about this. This has been a super interesting kind of trip report of your uh, Guayas mission and your most recent detention. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you think it is that leads you to get like detained so much? Yeah, first ascents in Colombia, uh, principally, basically exploratory kayaking. You know, when you're yeah, you can when kayakers have been through river corridors before. Um, it tends to s sort things out, logistics get settled, you know, people understand that we're, we're not some uh, nefarious multinational uh, sect of, of uh, manifest destiny types that we're, we're generally a pretty, pretty good crowd and people are, people are stoked to have us generally in their river corridors. Um, but when you're sort of on the sharp end of, opening some rivers up it's uh it's it's the name of the game sometimes is is uh international relations spending a little time sometimes unintended with the locals and just trying to sort the shit out hopefully for future descents um 
in a lot of well, the cases, I think like, I think a lot of people appreciate that you have been kidnapped <laughs> so much um, that they have had an easier time, you know. So I think on behalf of characters everywhere, you know, we'd like to say thank you very much for your time in captivity. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. No, I would do it. Uh, I'd, I'd do it again if I had the chance for sure. Well, that's good to hear. Ben, where can people follow you on the social media if they're interested in uh, your exploits? Yeah, you can just follow me at Ben Stokesbury with two O's. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for the opportunity to tell, uh, tell another story. Great. Well, thank you very much for telling us. Thanks, everyone who's listening at home. Thanks for subscribing and leaving ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you are listening to this. And finally, thank you very much to the people who support this podcast on Patreon. Um, I really couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much. And I will see you in a future podcast. Peace.